welcome back to the unmentionables where today we will be going over the case of the baby face killer new york in the 1970s was a hard place to live for all of the dreams coming true in the empire state there seemed to be a nightmare to match in June of 1975, a pamphlet was distributed to tourists titled Fear City, a survival guide for visitors to New York City. The pamphlet offered advice to those visiting New York City and gave them pro safety tips on how to endure their stay. By the second paragraph, readers were warned of NY's true nature. By the time you read this, the number of public safety personnel available to protect residents and visitors may already have been still further reduced. Under those circumstances, the best advice we can give you is this. Until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. Fear City was emblazoned with the face of the Grim Reaper. This pamphlet contained nine guidelines. Visitors were told to follow in order to benefit their safety. One, stay off the streets after 6 p.m. Two, do not walk. Three, avoid public transportation. Four, remain in Manhattan. Five, protect your property. Six, safeguard your handbag. Seven, conceal property in automobiles. Eight. Do not leave valuables in your hotel room. Nine, be aware of fire hazards. There was never a truer confessions of New York at the time. In the 1970s, huge pieces of the Big Apple were rotten. It was in one of these rotted places that Willie Bosack grew up. Bosket was born in Harlem on December 9th, 1960. His father had been imprisoned just after, just after Willie was conceived. Willie Sr. was sentenced to life for the murder of two people in a Milwaukee pawn shop. Willie Boskett Sr. had just moved to Milwaukee to promote a better life for his girlfriend and their unborn child. Boskett Sr. arrived there broke and desperate for cash. He attempted to sell his belongings to local pawn shops for a quick buck on a particularly desperate occasion. Boskett Sr. offered one of those locations a collection, a collection of pornographic. The owner of the establishment agreed to purchase them, but claimed he could not pay Boskett until the following day. When Boskett Sr. returned, the owner refused to pay him, and it was then that Willie Boskett Sr. pulled his knife and stabbed the owner of the pawn shop. He quickly killed a nearby witness, as his father's absence instilled a sense of abandonment in Willie, and Willie's mother, Laura, Laura projected that onto her son from the moment he was born. Anytime Willie got out of line, his mother would insist, Boy, you bad, just like your father. You sure got the devil in you, she said. Willie grew up with that expectation. It came from his mother, from his grandmother, and eventually Willie believed it too. He was going to be a bad man. When he learned that his father was in prison, that seemed to be the boy's ultimate destination too. Willie's environment seemed just as determined to make that prophecy. When Laura was first left jobless and pregnant with Willie Jr., she returned to her mother's home for aid. 
at the time nancy laura's mother was already caring for laura's first child a girl named cheryl cheryl was five years old before willie turned six he was already running thieving and making a name for himself on the streets his mother taught him to above all else persevere perceive his respect whether that meant cursing taunting or outright harming another person never made a difference for willie as his father before him respect was all he had willie senior had been known to be explosive he was a bad man after all and nobody was respected on the street as much as a bad man it didn't take long before earning the title seemed to be a goal for young Willie. If that was what he was meant to be, Willie thought, then he would be the baddest of them all. Willie became unpredictable. Once in a crowded movie theater, Willie jumped up and attempted to strangle a man who had knocked down his popcorn. I'm only kidding, he laughed just a moment later. I just felt like choking somebody. Willie hadn't even started school by this point. Willie would frequently still lose cash from the corner of his neighborhood where men would gather and play dice. He was often caught shoplifting at the nearby grocery store. Willie would even pull the wicks from the heads of unsuspecting women for a quick laugh. He was enrolled in first grade after turning six. There, he fought with other students, ran recklessly through the halls, and pulled on the fire alarms. Willie enjoyed only one teacher, Miss House, who was assigned the most chaotic of the children. When he moved on from her class, however, he was right back at it again. School was full of trouble and lectures and boring classmates. By second grade, Boskett was regularly skipping class. When Willie hurled a typewriter through the school's window, he was finally expelled. On March 9, 1971, Laura took her son for a psychiatric evaluation at Bellevue Hospital. It was the same institution that Willie's father and grandfather had once visited, although at the time, a lack of proper record-keeping kept that from being recognized. They asked to keep Willie for 30 days. The young boy didn't understand how he could be locked away from the world like an adult. In his experience, children were slapped or scolded, but never imprisoned. Yet Bellevue took him from his mother. He came to feel that she abandoned him there, casting him off as a problem which she could no longer handle. Bellevue wanted to keep Willie even longer. His mother refused. Tired of visiting a crying child and hoping that his stay had changed something within him. Willie's grandfather, James, had recently been released from Rikers Prison after kidnapping and sodomizing a young boy. Still, Laura and Nancy had their hands full. When James offered to take Willie on the weekends to his newly rented apartment in Queens, they welcomed the idea. No one thought to warn Willie of his grandfather's crimes. It wasn't long before James took the child to his apartment. <clears throat> I'm going to teach you about sex, he said. It will be our little secret. On the fourth occasion, James also began to beat Willie Boskett. This time, the boy fled and had a nearby store clerk phone the police. Willie's behavior only worsened from that point on. 
After setting a fire to a park bench while a man still slept upon it, Laura gave up yet again. The family court sentenced Willie Boskett to the Wiltwick School for Boys. Yet again, Willie was unknowingly tracing his father's footsteps. Willie Sr. had been sent to Wil Wiltwick when he was nine years old. Willie himself was the same age. When he arrived there, Fear City was grooming the boy, steering Willie towards his ultimate destination. Still, his family and peers would be surprised to learn that Willie's crimes would eventually escalate to the point of consecutive sentences of 25 years of life. Willie Bosted Jr. will not be eligible for release from prison until he is 100 years old. Even the renowned Willskit School for Boys could not break Willie from his destructive path. At the time... At the time of his sentencing to Wilwick, as the family court sought to help the young man in whatever way it could, Willie dared to argue with the judge. You're a lying motherfucker, he shouted. Willie was only nine years old. You can go fuck yourself. The child went on, and I don't need no motherfucker. And I don't need no motherfucking white lawyer neither. I want to go home. Instead, he was taken to Wiltwick, where the best and brightest were determined to turn the troubled youth towards a brighter path. From the very moment of his arrival, Willie, Willie's time at Wiltwick was marked by hardship. While Willie received a tour of the nearby woods from another boy, his mother left him. He returned to find her gone. No goodbye, no embrace. Willie screamed and cursed, cried and kicked. He hated feeling dumped, let alone by his mother. His growing hatred for women had started to outweigh his love. His troubles did not end that day. Feeling threatened, Willie smacked a boy named Richard with a sock filled with stones. It opened Richard's skull, but saved Willie from the danger of being bullied. Willie hit him again and again until Richard began to seize. Willie had on, held on to his respect. The boys called him crazy. He liked that. Prior to Willie Boskin, Boltwick held a strict never-give-up policy. They did not transfer troubled pupils. They did not tranquilize them with medicine. Boltwick believed that firm guidance could save any burdened youth. Willie took advantage of that environment. He was violent, rambunctious, and unapologetic. He broke furniture, assaulted other children, and threatened his teachers. Wiltwick had no choice but to sedate. During Boskett's stay at Wiltwick, Laura rarely came to visit. He missed her incredibly, and so he began a series of escape attempts. They escalated until ultimately, ultimately Wiltwick gave up. Willie felt as though he had beaten them. He was sent back to Bellevue for another diagnosis. Boskett was rejected there as well. Willie was passed around by institutions until the family court failed to extend his case. He was freed in February 1976. Willie had just turned 13 and was eager to make up for lost time. He started spending more time on his days. He started spending more and more of his days with his troublemaking cousins. Together, they resumed the life of crime that Willie began when he was just a child. His cousins were all 16 at the time, but Bill Willie 
was by far the smartest. He was their leader. They started stealing fire extinguishers from subway cars. When they grew bored of that, they moved on to pickpocketing and then to robbing, whichever subway passengers they thought looked the weakest. Willie was arrested for the first time on March 21st, 1976. He'd been caught rifling through the pockets of a sleeping passenger. It was the beginning of another downward spiral for Willie. After that, he was arrested and frequently, as frequently as once per month. Before we go on, I do have a question though. Did him not, did him going to the mental institution not count as an arrest because it said he wouldn't be released until he was a hundred? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I think it was, I think it was more of if he didn't go to the mental institution, he was going to stay in prison until he was a Okay, yeah, so they I just, sent him I just you know, it said he was supposed to stay there until he was 100, but they gave up on him, which, I mean, it sounds like he's kind of like a product of his environment. A little bit, yeah. And they, he was following in his father's footsteps at the same time. So they probably sent him to Bellevue, and then he got sentenced a bunch of time, and so they sent him to Wealthwick. That way he would have a chance to change and become an adult. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> After that, a series of arrests, he was admitted to the court to the Lieutenant Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. home. The sentence amused Willie. The Kennedy home was meant for far less dangerous boys than him. He was a bad man, and it wouldn't take a bad man much effort to escape. Ten days passed before Willie disappeared. He was back home. New York had their hands full at the time. They could not spare the manpower to search for the runaway Willie. He was detained again. He wasn't detained again until January of 1977 when his mother reported him to the police for striking his cousin with a hammer. He returned this time to another institution, Brookwood. There he was thought to repair furniture and replace broken panes of glass. Brookwood let him work. They let him learn, and in Brookwood, Willie attempted to make something of himself. Patience was the most deciding factor. The facility, at first, an attempt to just class C Willie Boskett, offered to let him work during the day instead of attending class. Working felt more suitable for Willie. Men worked, boys sat in class. He attached himself to the responsibility naturally and was eager to learn more and to apply himself in the position. For the first time in his life, Brookwood had given Willie a means of gaining respect and feeling accomplished without having to first incite violence. Boskett's behaviors improved. His tantrums became less and less frequent. Willie had fond things to say about his time in Brookwood. Working in maintenance, I got respect. I learned. Earn it, don't take it. I grew up here. Of course... That time came to an end. Willie was meant to transfer to another maintenance program at another development center. When he arrived, the staff confessed that no such program existed. Willie was being shuffled back into the strict school regiment that he'd grown to despise. Willie Boskett stayed there for just one night before escaping. By then, Laura had started living with a new boyfriend. It was from that boyfriend who worked for protection for a drug house next door that Willie received his first gun. 
On February 1st, 1978, Willie killed a boy who hadn't who had been disrespecting him. He knocked a child from a rooftop and burned the body that next day. On March 19th of the same year, Willie was back prowling the subway system of New York. He targeted a middle-aged Hispanic man who had fallen asleep in the car. The man wore pink sunglasses and a digital watch. The stranger reminded Willie of an old counselor, one who used to shout and swat his pupils. When the counselor would strike, his watch would pop on his wrist, and the beating would pause just long enough for the belt to be recollapsed. Willie waited until him, until he and that sleeping passenger were the last two on the subway. He started rummaging through the man's pockets and woke him. Willie didn't hesitate. In fact, he was looking for an excuse to pull the trigger. He shot Noel Perez first through the right eye and then second time in the temple. Willie took the stranger's watch, his rings, and $15 from his pants pocket. That's some bullshit. That's that's not anything to kill a man. $15, bro? Well, he wanted to kill him in the first place. From March 24th to March 27th, Willie committed himself to a pattern of violent crime alongside his cousin Herman. One night, they pushed a man down a set of stairs and they stole $12 as the stranger bled on the ground. Another night, Willie shot a 57-year-old passenger named Matthew Connolly. On the 27th of March, Herman and Willie cornered another middle-aged Hispanic man on the number three train. When Moises Perez insisted that he had no money for the criminals to take, Willie shot him. Willie and Herman were both arrested on March 13th, 31st. Once the more simple-minded Herman was convinced that his cousin had betrayed him, Willie was identified as the killer police had been searching for. Hearings began on April 6th, and immediately Boskett took a reckless stand in the courtroom. He was both profane and aggressive, going so far as to spit on the lawyer's head and to threaten the judge's life. Willie Boskett was strained and exhausted, resorting to the violent nature that he harbored for so much of his youth. It seemed that he just that the justice system was only wasting his time once more. He was too young to be tried as an adult, and Willie knew that. He knew he wouldn't be sent to prison. Willie surrendered his right to trial and pled guilty on two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. In Willie's mind, he had only sped things along. It was his destiny to be incarcerated, after all, just as his father had been. Willie Boskett received the maximum sentence for a criminal his age at this time. He was placed with the Division for Youth for an initial period of five years. No matter his behavior from that point on, Willie was set to be freed when he reached his 21st birthday. Governor Hugh Carey was set to make a campaign appearance on his path of re-election just two days after Willie's sentencing. The light slap on the wrist Willie received did not sit well with the whole of New York, who was tired of being gripped in the powerful hands of fear. The newspaper had already sensationalized the murders and claimed that Willie had shot those victims for fun. Fear City had taken to calling Willie the baby-faced killer. To secure the support of the people, Carey took a sudden and severe stand on the subject. He cited Willie's sentencing as a breakdown of the system 
and vowed that a new law installed under his regime would make sure that Willie never walks the street again. The Juvenile Offender Act of 1978 was passed, and with it, individuals as young as 13 could be tried as an adult in criminal court for charges such as murder. Soon, the policy spread from New York to its neighboring states. They took to calling it the Willie Basket Law. Willie enjoyed the fame. Unfortunately, the law would soon work against him, just as Governor Gary intended. When Willie tried to escape his detention facility, he was tried as an adult and sentenced to four years in state prison. Willie was released in 1983. According to Willie himself, it was after this stint in prison that he began to straighten his life out. Willie had been in correspondence with his father who preached about change and maturity. And Willie thought maybe for the first time he could see a life that didn't end with him behind bars, no matter how pure his intentions were this time around. Willie's reputation and the grudge held by New York City had yet to fade. A surprising 100 days passed before Willie would be arrested again. His girlfriend and her neighbor had gotten into a passive-aggressive conflict, no more than the usual bickering exchange in apartment hallways. When that neighbor accidentally scared Willie, Willie decided to return the favor and threaten the man's life. The man called the police and claimed that Willie chased him, threatened him, and tried to break into his home. In 1984, Willie was found guilty of attempted assault and sentenced to seven more years in prison. Soon, the city of New York dug up one of Willie's old escape charges and tried him for the incident. If found guilty, it would have been Willie's third felony and enough reason for him to be locked away for life. Willie thought he had finally succumbed to his fate. So I guess New York is one of those uh, states that has the three strikes you're outlaw uh, where if you get three felonies you're automatically eligible for life in prison probably I know a couple of states that are like that the day was upon him he realized when he could look towards the future and know that nothing awaited him except another prison cell he was furious he assaulted officer after officer until he had accumulated a total of three sentences 25 to life. Willie Boskett Jr. has remained in solitary confinement since 1989. He waged a war against the system. He felt had destroyed him. From 1985 to 1994, he received 250 disciplinary violations. Damn. He was placed in a plexiglass cell, speckled with only enough holes to let in air and sound. Before meeting with visitors, Willie had to be chained backwards to his own door. It would open with Willie stuck there in bondage to ensure that he could not attack visitors or personnel. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He had to be chained to the door. Yeah. This every... man had been sentenced to prison before he turned 21. Yeah. This dude is so dangerous Whoa. that he had to be chained to the fucking door. You, you got to think about it, though. He had committed these crimes, and he finally found a reason to stop. He wanted to change his life for the better, and all he did was threaten somebody. And, and now he's back in prison. He got trumped up charges, and his whole life was gone again. 
So, well, you got to think, though. I mean, he wouldn't have got trumped up charges if he, if he wouldn't have done the shit. Well, he was never taught. Anything. All right, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it's a likely possibility that he didn't, he doesn't quite understand how bad that is, or he didn't at the time. And even though he did do that, he still did get trumped up charges, and I'd be pretty pissed about that, too. So, So what you're saying is, that he's a product of his environment. I think that his mother and family significantly contributed to him. So, so, so nurture versus nature. Yeah. Okay. In the present, he searches for answers. He wonders what could have been done differently. What might have saved him from his prophecy? And he hopes for those solutions to prevent other children from repeating his steps. Wooly has not received a disciplinary violation since 1994. He accepted his existence now more than ever. And while many wonder what effect the system of incarceration and punishment might have had on Wooly while he was a young man, others are simply pleased to know that the state of New York kept its word. After the introduction of the Willie Bosick law, New York was able to go ahead of the rampant criminal youth that had taken over its boroughs. With the baby-faced killer locked away, Fear City is no more.